This is Occupied Territory America with Mike Fader. And this is Mike Fader with Occupied Territory America. Don't forget to join our ongoing daily uh, back-and-forth political conversation, uh, sometimes argument or debate, but basically conversation on Facebook. It's uh, Go to Facebook and Occupied Territory. It will take you there. Um, most of you, or many of you, I should say, are aware of the fact that privatization is one of the great uh, debates, one of the great issues, not just in this country, but in countries all over Europe and other places. But the United States is fighting its own battles. And it's the same old story. People who are just plain predators, the psychopaths, the ones who don't ever have enough money, want to try to own absolutely everything. In fact, it's partially what's behind this uh, government shutdown. Um, the idea is to cripple government or to let government uh, kind of drift so it doesn't function too well. And then say, well, only a really well-organized corporation or business can take over. Well, in some cases, it's worse than others, um, and in one particular case, it probably is the worst, which is privatized prisons, and that's something that's happening in Arizona, a few other states, but it's happening very much in Texas, and we have somebody with us um, today who is going to talk to us about that, Kimberly Charles, who's with um, an organization called Grassroots Leadership, and she is the uh, national organizer uh, of public safety and justice camp, of the public safety and justice campaign. And it's a coalition of faith, labor, human, and civil rights and grassroots organizers to end the practice of profiting from incarceration, which is very big business. Hi. Hi, Mike. How are you? Okay. Um, what, what kind of phone you're on there? We're having a little. Um, is it a speakerphone? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I am on my. Um, I'm on my iPhone, and I have a headset. Oh. Um, I just moved it closer to me. Is that any better? It is. It is somewhat better. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, let me let me. Uh, can you give me some uh, background on the organization you're in? Sure. Suits Leadership um, is almost 35 years old now. Um, it's an organization that historically has done work with southern communities that came out of the southern civil rights and labor movements. Um, and um, historically, we've done a lot of work uh, helping communities um, strategize and um, build power to address the most pressing needs as they see them. Um, is over it, time, oh, it, I'm sorry, it's a national organization, is it? We are a national organization. We have offices in Charlotte, North Carolina, Austin, Texas, um, and some part-time staff in New Mexico as well. Mm -hmm. um, but we do actually do work um, in states across the country. Now, uh, maybe we could uh, start sort of uh, in a local uh, way and then expand it a little bit, this conversation about privatizing prisons. Um, sure. Let me. Uh, something happened uh, in the last few months in a place called McAllen, Texas. Maybe you could explain what happened there, step by step. 
Sure. Um, McAllen, Texas is a small town um, in the Rio Grande Valley, um, which is the Texas-Mexico border region. Um, and uh, the town, the city, it's, I should describe it as a city, they, they call it a city, mm-hmm. um, decided to consider um, contracting with a private company to build an immigration detention facility um, in their community. Um, and we actually uh, were kind of tipped off by some press about that. It hadn't been um, uh, discussed publicly with the community of McAllen. Um, but anyway, uh, we got we we were tipped off by some press about that and and learned that the city had already issued a request for proposals, an RFP. Um, and um, so, you know, at the period that we heard about it um, was the period in which private prison companies had the opportunity to submit proposals to the city of McAllen um, for consideration. Is this co- is this competitive bidding, or did they just pick a company? Well, the RFP process is supposed to be a competitive process, um, and the RFPs contain within them the criteria that companies need to meet um, in order to be awarded a contract, and and that often includes um, a cost savings measure. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of McAllen Geo Group, which is one of the largest uh, private prison companies in the country, was the sole bidder. Um, excuse me, was the sole bidder. Um, for that proposal, and um, it's not uncommon um, for these RFP proposals, or sorry, these RFP processes to only see one bidder, but certainly there are plenty of cases in which it actually is a competitive process. Um, there are um, three major private prison companies in the United States, Corrections Corporation of America, the GEO Group, and Management and Training Corporation, MTC. Mm-hmm. Um, they do compete with each other, and then I would say that there are, you know, um, a, a dozen or twenty other smaller um, private prison companies or or private companies that provide prison services, prison services inside of um, prison environments. Now, this is a McAllen is a it's a city, it's a small city in Texas, and I I guess I would be guessing unless you know what twenty thirty thousand people something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I actually don't know that number off the top of my head, but it's a small city. Yeah. All right. So why do they need a prison? Well, that's a good question. Often the um, incentive for these cities is job creation. Um, and then they're, you know, they're also um, often targeted as places where there's um, other, you know, economic opportunity. And so the idea is, you know, you bring in um, a private prison or you bring in a prison, it creates jobs. Um, in, in the case of private prisons, there's, you know, they claim to provide a lot of cost savings for the services that they provide. So um, um, that, you know, supposedly can translate into revenue for the community in other ways. Um, by and large, based on our research, um, we don't find that to be the case. Um, so in McAllen, um, you know, I mean, being along the U.S.-Mexico border, right. um, immigration detention is is a big business. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I think that it was less about what was happening specifically with the residents of McAllen and more just that McAllen happens to be in the Rio Grande Valley. So, um, uh, so for so basically, they would be getting uh, they would be getting federal business in a way. They would just have a sort of a local 
I mean, here, this is an article I think I got from your website. It says the city of McAllen would have expanded its existing contract. They already have some existing contract, I guess, with the U.S. Marshals Service. Mm-hmm. And the private company, uh, that's GEO, it would in turn pay McAllen a portion of the government's daily per-inmate payment. Uh, and according to the city commissioner, Scott Crane, the jail could have generated $3 million to $5 million annually for McAllen. So... I don't. It's there's sort of like a double, double sort of things going on here. The the U.S. Marshals Service uh, would be uh, would have a contract with McAllen, and McAllen would sort of subcontract to the private prison. Yeah, that's that's generally how it works. Um, and however, what we find is that there are other costs associated with having um, a prison facility in your community that, you know, is never factored into the, the contracts here. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there are social costs associated with having a prison in your community. And generally speaking, we don't think it's a good idea to, um, you know, build an economic development plan around incarcerating people. Um, we believe, The position that we come from at Grassroots Leadership is that we rely far too heavily on incarceration to deal with our social problems and, and you know, the, the challenge that we have with immigration in this country um, and to create a situation in which we are incarcerating where we're increasing capacity to incarcerate more people is not the answer. And again, you know, as McAllen is on the border, mm-hmm. um, it is also a community where there are a lot of immigrants, both documented and undocumented. And so... Um, well, they they must have opposed this, right? Well, I mean, yeah, there was there was strong opposition to this proposal, and and we worked with partners down there um, to to find the people who would be who you know felt like they could speak out. And I mean, here's one of the things that that I think is a big problem with this is a lot of these negotiations happen under the radar. So as I mentioned, mm. there was no public debate in the first place about whether the city should release an RFP. Um, to bring a private prison. Nobody asked the community, is this the way, you know, we should be um, developing our community here economically? And so people don't know that there's a process in which they can oppose it. Sometimes we actually have to demand that there be a process. And so that's where grassroots leadership often comes in is we get this information and then we, you know, we find our local partners there and help to figure out what is the process that we can go through in order to actually let the people that hold the power know how we feel about some of these things. But in, but in a place like that, in a lot of places like that, usually the smaller, uh, the more open it is. In other words, people don't spend lots of money or make long-term contracts with anybody unless there's a public hearing. I'm surprised to hear that there isn't. Is that standard practice in a lot of these places? You know, I would I would have to say I, ha- I, I I don't I don't think I can make an accurate statement on that. Mm-hmm. I can say for sure though that you know in McAllen and in other places in Texas we also had a successful campaign blocking another contract in the community of Kerrville, Texas, um, which was also um, a, a geo contract that they were looking at. Um, you know, Kerrville again is a small community as well, and there just wasn't communication with the community that that the city. Well, in, in that case, it was actually a state hospital, mm-hmm. um, but it was, it's a you know a huge employer for the city, and and there was very little you know dialogue with the residents of that community about you know what they thought about bringing in uh, 
um, a private company to, to build or manage their facilities. And, you know, one of the things that's um, a characteristic of these private companies is that they tend to um, negotiate for um, long-ish contracts. Right, and so right. it's, you know, it's, it's part of their business model. I, the, uh, I know that the um, the city of Chicago recently um, negotiated a contract, also without much discussion at all. Basically, Mr. Emanuel and a couple of his friends there in Chicago negotiated a contract with a consortium of companies financed by J.P. Morgan and some company in Dubai for the entire mm-hmm. parking meters of Chicago mm-hmm. for 75 years. Yeah. 75 yeah. years. And it turns out, of course, that they're getting far less money for it than they should. Right. Although yeah, one day I mean, one day we'll pick up the paper and find out that a couple of people got some money, but what, that's for later on, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but so, so in these towns uh, in Texas, I mean, but how do you deal with people locally who say, wait, you know, there's a lot of unemployment, there's, there's no jobs, uh, there's lots of problems down here. Why would you interfere in our town when we're, when we're able to provide hundreds of jobs or more than hundreds of jobs for people who really need them? Isn't that something you run up against? We absolutely do run up against that, and um, it's a real issue. Unemployment is high um, in Texas, especially in rural Texas, and it's something that we're very concerned about. Um, you know, we we just won um, a campaign to shut down a private facility, the Mineral Wells Pre-Parole Transfer Facility, in a very rural town. Um, that is, you know, almost completely dependent on the prison. I shouldn't say completely dependent. It's highly dependent on um, this prison facility for employment. And so, so what? So, what's your group's alternative, and how do you respond to these problems? Well, I mean, the the way that we respond is that you know we we try to provide some analysis on why it's actually really not a sound plan to base a town's um, employment or economic development on. Um, on prison facilities, and it's, you know, we come at that from a moral and ethical position. But it's also true that nationwide and in Texas, rates of incarceration are slowly on the decline because um, the states are realizing that it's you know a huge fiscal challenge to manage these enormous departments of criminal justice that mm-hmm. have been um, expanding and expanding and expanding under you know harsher and harsher sentencing laws and things like that. And so we're in a moment right now where states are actually trying to figure out how to shrink their departments of corrections um, in order to deal with the fiscal challenges. And so, you know, the, the, the employment, aside, the, the issue of, you know, losing jobs aside, the trend in, in incarceration right now is that rates are declining. And so whether or not we're coming in and shutting them down, um, you know, we expect to see that trend um, continuing in the same direction. Well, we think that fewer and fewer people are going to be locked up in the future. Well, that's certainly that's a goal that everybody wants to achieve. And <clears throat> certainly morally, I'm completely with you. you. You know, it's wrong, absolutely wrong in every possible way, especially morally, to build uh, a community or a city or anything uh, on, you know, crime and punishment and incarceration, usually when it uh, turns into a business. I mean, places like in uh, Arizona... Uh, corporation, uh, you know, uh, the uh, some of the larger uh, criminal uh, justice corporations, whatever they are, 
they want guarantees of bed occupancy in these prisons. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You have, in other words, you make sure you keep giving us enough criminals so that it worth, it's worth our while to operate there. So morally, I agree with you, but I guess I have to insist that uh, that, that some answer has to be given. If you're going to go into a community, I'm, I'm just being devil's advocate here, right? Sure. Now, morally, I'm completely on your side. It's just filthy to do this kind of thing. I agree. But... Uh, and it encourages, you know, uh, cops and and uh, prosecutors and judges to keep finding more criminals all the time, and even if they have to make it up or, you know, overcharge or whatever it is. However, if you're in a place where everybody is flat broke and can hardly pay for their food and their rent, and all of a sudden there's a couple of hundred jobs, or there were a couple of hundred jobs, and you come in and, and gain the moral high ground but put these people out of work, I mean, don't you have to look at it kind of in a larger sort of coordinated way? Absolutely. We, and we, we do see it that way. I mean, it's a, it's a part of a bigger system. Um, and we, you know, we, I mean, the work that we do is kind of in this niche of criminal justice mm-hmm. and immigration work. Um, but we try to build partnerships um, with all the communities that we work in, um, including with, you know, like the organizations that are looking at um, economic development and you know, we've had some success actually getting, for example, in Kerrville, actually, the um, Economic Development Corporation of Kerrville was one of our, um, our you know, biggest partners on the campaign to stop the contract there mm-hmm. because they recognize that, you know, although um, there, you know, there may be some jobs involved, often these jobs are, you know, there's substandard pay. Um, there, it's substandard benefits. There's an extremely high rate of turnover um, in private staff turnover in private prisons, like upwards of 90 percent hmm. um, monthly. Really? Um, it's hmm. it's extraordinary. And so, you know, even even though you're right, there's a there's you know. We need to be finding jobs where we can find them, but we also encourage communities to advocate for themselves and say, we don't want just any jobs. You know, we think that we can do better. And right. what we've been able to create an environment for is a larger community conversation about how do we actually want to address the economic problems in our community rather than having, you know, um, an answer handed to us that we were not involved in or one that doesn't actually um, align with our values as a community or one that's going to actually give us good, sustainable jobs. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I understand that. So so in McAllen, uh, there was this, like, a, a strange kind of sleight of hand that occurred. There was a... Can you tell people what happened exactly? There was a package which contained a proposal, but it wasn't open. What was going on there? Well, to tell you the truth, I think we're a little bit... <laughs> confused about that too. In my experience, that was the first time that we've seen something like that happen. But technically the city did not did not open the proposal. So there were a seri- there was a period of time in which um, proposals could be received mm-hmm. um, and there was a period of time in which um, the community was actually given an opportunity to discuss um, uh, and share with the with the commissioners um, their opinion about it. Um, and at the the event at which um, there was going to be a decision about whether or not to award a contract, it, it, there was a box sitting there that contained um, the proposal that that Geo had submitted, and the city never actually opened it. Um, so that means that, that that nobody would know what was in it. If they didn't open it, nobody would have to know 
what was proposed or what the what, right yeah I see right and I think that the reason that the city did that is because it gives them an opportunity to actually keep that conversation open oh I see um, I see yeah. so it stays secret right but we're you know we've we've talked about um, utilizing our resources to find out if we can actually see what was in that proposal mm. see if we can find out what the communication was between uh, the city of McAllen and NGO group so your your group uh, is uh, involved locally so I mean I assume you, there are local people who are on your staff there I mean you, most people don't like people coming in from somewhere else to tell local right, but, yeah right yeah we are headquartered now in Austin Texas oh okay so um, all, all everybody in the Texas office works on our Texas campaigns but you know we always look for the local leadership um, in all the communities where we work um, we prefer to be kind of the, the quiet leaders or the leaders behind the scenes and actually um, support the local community in in speaking out, and that's very much what happened in McAllen. So uh, as far as um, grassroots leadership, I mean, what other kinds of things besides um, the uh, the privatization of prisons does the, does the group tackle? We're very heavily involved in um, a number of issues related to immigration reform, um, but again, that is, to a, to a large extent, um, that's an extension of the, the uh, prison privatization work that we do as well because um, so much of what is happening with immigration detention, um, you know, is part of this private prison debate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 50, about 50 percent of all um, immigration detention centers in the United States um, are operated by private prison, mm. private prison companies. Um, so, you know, for us, they are, it is the same issue. It's a yeah, different sure. population, but it's the same issue. Um, but, you know, again, we come from a place of advocating for decreased reliance on incarceration for um, addressing social problems. And so um, the immigration debate is a huge one for us, and we weigh in on, on many different parts of it as well. Now, give people the uh, the best place they can go as far as the public safety and justice campaign. I mean, where can people go to find out about this? Uh, you know, not just in Texas, but what the kind of work you do all over the place. Because it's essential work, you know. I mean, basically everything is drifting towards privatization. Like I said at the beginning of the show, one of the reasons they want to shut the government down, this particular group of um, loony sort of business-oriented people is, you know, so that the private companies can pick up, you know, they'll, mm -hmm. they'll run Social Security and Medicare and the EPA, you know, that kind of thing. So. Mm -hmm. so. Well, so the public safety and justice camp, right now the best place to plug into the public safety and justice campaign is um, through grassroots leadership or our, one of our other partners in the public interest. Mm -hmm. um, we are two organizations kind of anchor and provide coordination for that whole coalition. And we're working on um, <laughs> moving toward more uh, a public face on the internet, um, but currently um, um, our organizations are the ones that can, can, you know, are kind of the hubs of information, but mm -hmm. the Public Safety and Justice Campaign is actually working in um, 15 or 20 states around the country right now. We have partners all over the place, and so um, in the last year we have, um, or well, in the last couple of years, 
um, we've provided a lot of support and um, helped to build coalitions in Florida and New Hampshire and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we're working in Colorado, Michigan. We're looking at Idaho, um, California, Hawaii, Vermont. So, I mean, we're... Um, we're working in a lot of places. It's not it's not that visible externally, but one of the other reasons for that is because, you know, the, the work is happening on the ground with the organizations and the people that are from those places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are here for technical support. Um, we provide a lot of research, um, strategy, and things like that. And what's a, what's a good website for people to go to? Um, you can go to, there's a website called the Nation Inside, and nationinside.org has a tab for the public safety and justice campaign. Okay, uh, Kimberly Charles, and um, thanks for, for coming on, and uh, good luck down there. I mean, it's a national trend, but it's good to see people are fighting it. In fact, I see some progress all over the country. States are backing off, you know. Oh yeah, I mean we've we've seen a lot of successes this year, and you know in some in some cases we haven't had to do that much. Like I don't know if you remember, but when Florida Atlantic University was considering naming their football stadium after oh, yeah. the Geo Group, um, <laughs> right? You I know remember. that you know that campaign took off like wildfire because it was so clear that it was you know it's inappropriate for you know a, an academic institution to be honoring um, a, a, another institution that makes money off of incarcerating people. So. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, there are definitely there's definitely a lot of progress with this. It's one of the, one of the brighter spots, the anti-privatization movement. So thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. Uh, this is Mike Fader, and I'm the host of Occupied Territory America, which this show is. That's the one you're listening to right now. We're on every Thursday on prn.fm at uh, 2 p.m., And as I mentioned earlier, you can uh, join our ongoing daily political conversation on every possible issue. Uh, Just go to Occupied Territory on Facebook, Occupied Territory on Facebook, and uh, state your case, respond to things, post things on there, whatever you want. Um, If you want to get in touch with me personally about anything you heard on this show or for any reason, best to go to my website. You can join my mailing list there and hear about other stuff I do on the radio. It's faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. All right, we're going to take a short break right now, and we'll come back. Okay, we're back. This is Mike Fader, and um, 
you know, I've been doing this show for a couple of years now. It's almost about two years since the uh, roughly since the Occupy movement uh, started, and um, the original goal of the Occupy movement, among a few other things, but its profound sort of moving animus there was the. Um, was the uh, income inequality and is the income inequality in the country. And you see, to me, it's all coming to a kind of a climax. Um, personally, I don't think, having read a lot of history or having lived through a lot of history at this point in my life, I don't see it happening without a tremendous amount of revolutionary activity. And I don't necessarily mean violence, but I don't mean that you're not going to see any. Uh, there is, and for instance, if you're in a country like Greece, where the banks just took away the depositors' money to pay off debts to other banks, where the government and the banks in league with each other, and a, you know, like a, a, a sort of a semi-fascist dictatorship over there, which is becoming more and more, um, where they basically, uh, in league with the banks, took away depositors' money. It just took away. Imagine you work your whole life. You're 25, 35, 45, 85. Everything you, you every spare cent you have, and there's not many spare cents left in our in our in our uh, budgets anymore. All these people work all their lives. They put their money in these banks. They're encouraged to do it, and the banks just ate their money. They go to the bank. They don't have any money. You know, like in this country, we have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which theoretically, if something happens to your bank, if it fails. They will, uh, up to $250,000 per account, whatever that means, that you're insured. But you know if there is a disaster, and right now we're on the verge of uh, something that could be a disaster, which is a government shutdown uh, beyond which is added to, and on top of which I should say is added, the idea of not lifting this uh, debt limit. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole discussion, first of all, because I don't understand economics that well. And secondly, because I think a lot of this is kind of um, illusory or trumped up stuff. In other words, it's a kind of a fake world that has become our real world. After all, there's no real money in this country at all when it comes to the federal government. When they want to raise the debt limit from $14 trillion to $15 trillion, what does that actually mean? Nobody's got that money. The money doesn't exist. It's not backed by anything. It's just paper that they print. Uh, or numbers that they transfer over an, over a cable from China, and now we say, you know, we have money now. We don't have anything. It's not none of this is real. But the way that societies run, and modern societies run, these are not old old fashioned societies where you traded, you know, four sheep for uh, you know for a few coins, or maybe uh, you know six bushels of corn or whatever. This is not a barter system. Everything is abstract now, and it's so abstract that a lot of people don't even understand not only what they're doing themselves, but other people don't understand what any bank or trading company is doing. I mean, did you ever hear anybody try to explain what a derivative was? I have 10 times from experts, and I have no idea what a derivative is, or monetization of debt, or uh, you know, combined securitization, and I, I have no idea because it's not real. Uh, there are people who make millions of dollars a year, uh, a lot of them work in New York City, who make up these things out of nothing. They don't, these people are people, there are, there are tens of thousands of people who work in hedge funds, uh, brokerage houses, uh, you know, banking firms, and they spend all day long uh, making lots of money uh, in frantic activity often, doing nothing. They don't make anything uh, they don't sell anything that's real. They don't buy anything that's real. They call themselves traders, which all seems kind of offensive to me. 
You know, did you ever go to a swap? You know, like you go to like a flea market or a swap thing where you, you come in and you've got some old dented toaster, but somebody really wants it because they can fix it, and you swap it for an old jackknife or whatever, right? Or you bring in, you know, you go up, the, you drive up in the country, and you see people selling uh, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables that they grew at the side of the road. Or maybe you go to a store in a local community and it's filled with uh, chests of drawers or chairs or tables that somebody made with their own labor and creativity and sweat, right? The opposite of this, one time I was, and this is capitalism. This is capitalism at its utmost. It's a combination of abstraction and greed, which turns into something which is almost indecipherable or incomprehensible as a human activity. But they tell you it's the most important thing at all. Like you pick up the business section of the New York Times, and it talks about uh, the SEC clamping down on the derivatives this, uh, default, you know, uh, raising the, the, the debt ceiling. What does this all mean? What does this all mean? There are people in the, there are millions of people in the world who actually work on assembly lines, putting things together and making things. Some of it is junk and useless garbage, but they make something that you can buy. Maybe it's a can opener that somebody in a metal stamping place or some factory is turning out can openers. Or maybe it's a place where it produces tires, where you can actually drive somewhere in your car, go to work, for instance. Or pencil you can pick up. There are people, billions of people who are you know, in, uh, in factories all over the world, like, for instance, in Bangladesh, making, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, even millions of garments a year that are shipped to the United States that people wear, um, shoes, uh, you know, dresses, blouses, jackets, whatever. And these people labor all day at sewing machines or, you know, they assemble or they cut this stuff or they sew it. But the first time I was ever exposed to this abstract, this combination of crazy greed and abstraction so that it makes you feel like you want to just literally, I hate to say this in this day and age, kind of like blow up the whole thing and settle down to a real life or just leave, of course. And that was just, uh, you know, that was just a suggestion uh, that was in my mind, not a real thing. I went to work when I was 23 years old. Um, I was going to graduate school to get a degree, get a master's degree in English, of course, because I've always gone straight for the big money making stuff. I was going to get a master's in English. What was I going to do with it? I was going to be a high school teacher, you know, or maybe a college associate professor or whatever. That's what I was going to do. I even had a jacket with, uh, you know, with the uh, the elbows already sewed with a leather patch, and I had a pipe that my uh, ex-wife got me. She wanted me to be a professor. Anyway, I'm going to Queens College to get my master's in English. But, you know, we don't have any money, so i got to have a part-time job. And I go to the college at night, and during the day I'm working. So I get a job. In this company, which was right down there, it was like a block away from Wall Street. And Wall Street is just a street, right? Wall Street, it's a, it's a, it's a state of mind, right? Wall Street. And, and as soon as you hear that, you think of what, you know, greed, uh, predatory activity, controlling the destinies of billions of people, you know, by p- pressing buttons or trading things in smoke-filled rooms, Wall Street. So this place was on the, the, the penthouse of a very tall building about a block away from Wall Street. And you get up there, and it's the only, it's like, you ha- it's one of those um, really fancy places. Uh, I don't know how I got this job. I guess they advertised for a file clerk. I, all I did was file stuff, and this is before computers. So basically, there was tons of paper to file all the time. It's one of these offices that was so rich and fancy that it had its own floor. So you just hit, you know, uh, 
penthouse one or whatever, and you went to the top of this building, like 25 stories, where you could look out all over lower Manhattan and see everything. And you go up to the top of this building, and I'm in this office. What was this office? This office had four guys working for it. They were all graduates of Harvard Business School, originally had gone to Yale. All of them were brought up rich and, you know, sent by their very smart guys, right? Um, sent by their families as a matter of noblesse oblige, you know what I mean? Like, uh, instead of going into the... Uh, into some other profession, they went into, uh, you know, buying and selling. And uh, this was the, this office represented all of the Rothschild money in the United States. This is what this office was. I forget what it was called. It doesn't make any difference, right? They're all the same. Um, you know, uh, J- Jones and Company, yeah, you know, Brown's Partners, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. So I'm working at this place. There's four guys there. They all have their own desks in this sort of large sort of office space. Very fancy, though, you know, like um, ebony desks. And they had their own um, they had a secretarial staff. They had their own kitchen and a part-time chef in this place, right? There must have been more than 20 people working there, and I was the file clerk. And uh, all of the Rothschild money, and we're talking about billions of dollars that was invested in this country, was done by these guys. And that was the first time I've ever seen people tamper with the stock market. They had so much money to invest and to throw around that they could influence the price of a stock. And one day, I mean, as little as I understood, I understood this much. I watched all four of these guys, these traders, they call themselves, which is offensive. They're not trading anything but some abstract extrusion of greed on a piece of paper. Um, I watched these guys uh, call up everybody they knew at all kinds of other brokerage houses and banks and trading companies. They called every, and everybody knew who these guys were. And these guys threw a lot of weight around because everybody knew that they were the men who invested, who bought and sold all the Rothschild shares and money in the whole country, right? And we're talking about billions of dollars, and even back then, that's a long time ago. And I watched these guys pick a stock. They pick a stock once, and it wasn't just out of random. You know, they researched some company. They picked this stock, which was selling at a certain point. And what they did was they... Um, they, they drove it up. They kept calling everybody all day long, and they kept making jokes and slapping, giving each other high fives, and they would call each other, and they would call uh, trading desks and other clients and people like this all day long. And, um, and there wasn't other clients. They didn't screw their own clients. That's a very modern invention. And they, would, they drove this stock up really, really high, and they had, you know, already, they already owned something like 50% of this stock in this, trade, in this company that was publicly traded, drove it up something like double what it was in the morning into the afternoon, and then sold it when it was at its very height, way inflated, not even worth that at all, whatever that means either. And uh, the stock went plummeting down way below where it was when they started in the morning. I saw them manipulate the stock market, which is so illegal, believe me. And this is the thing that really got me, though. They would call other people up on the phone who had similar jobs, like at Goldman Sachs or whatever other places, and they would say, Bob, hi, it's, uh, it's Ted here. You know, uh, yes, wonderful yachting race the other day, or whatever it is they were talking about. And they'd say, how's everything at your shop? Shop? Do you know that that's how they refer to themselves? They talk about products. All bankers talk about, we have some wonderful products. Uh, J.P. Morgan has some brand new products. Pro- what product? <laughs> they, they talk about trading. What are they trading? They talk about their shops. They say, and they say, uh, we, need the, we need the whole toolbox here. They like to think, they do this on purpose, I think, to, to make themselves feel better about the meaningless. Uh, predatory, greedy business that they're in. 
the fact that they are basically raping and killing, metaphorically speaking, all over the world every single day and never making anything useful or real or good that anybody needs, but in fact quite the opposite, causing vast amounts of misery and pain from their fancy offices, right? And not couldn't care less and taking home millions of dollars. They have families. Their kid, they love their kids, I guess. Most of them do or some of them do. And, you know, their kids have the best of everything, nannies, the best private schools. They have, uh, you know, a, a vacation house somewhere, you know, I don't know, in the Rockies or upstate New York, these people, a very fancy place. They have two or three different cars, a Mercedes, uh, you know, SUV. And so everything is provided for their families. And what they do most of the time, day in and day out, is buy and sell things and cause things to crash or burn or inflate things that don't have any value to the point where billions of people in the world are influenced by this. Uh, Whole businesses go broke and fire thousands of employees because of a few phone calls that these guys make. And they have the, uh, the nerve to refer to it as a shop. Think of what's in a shop, things that people make, Pieces that real people made that you can buy and use. <laughs> they, they call it a shop. They talk about their whole toolkit that they need to, uh, to do what they're doing. And I think, they, I think they refer to this stuff just because they, uh, they want to make themselves feel better about the utterly hollow, vicious, meaningless life they have. I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, and these are the people that run the world. They own and run the world. And this is directly, the reason I mention all this is it's directly connected, um, aside from the fact that these people like to think of themselves as actual workers, like they're, living, they're working in a shop with tools, which is offensive beyond words. Uh, what I'm, well, I'm, the reason I'm talking about this is this government shutdown and the refusal to raise this debt limit, aside from the fact that it's all... Uh, you know, vapor. It's all meaningless, uh, you know, figures on a piece of paper that a lot of rich people made up and they call it money. But in fact, it does affect everybody in a real way, as you can see. I mean, they put people on furlough, these, uh, this particular group of, I think it's like 40 or so um, right-wing, semi-ignorant lunatics in uh, the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. But really, you know, they're just sort of uh, excretory symbols <laughs> of, of the basic political reality of this country, which is it's all a government of the rich, by the rich, and for the rich, right? So these people are, uh, you know, the people are furloughed. And you, you hear the most stupid of them and the most offensive and the insensitive ones get on TV all the time and say, I don't see any big deal here. Well, of course not. The, um, the average um, assets of a member of Congress is something, point, something like $11.1 million. Their salaries are $172,000. They have all sorts of perks. They have health insurance. They have a gym they can work out in. There's nothing that they don't have courtesy of taking your, your, tax, taking your taxes out of your check. They are paid no matter what they do to everybody, no matter who they put out of work, no matter who they kill, by their negligence and abuse, they still get paid. They go to work. They have all their perks. They have their health insurance. Their families are protected. They have their gym. They have their cafeteria. They have everything that they want. So it's no big deal. And they get on and they say, rich as they are, uh, sealed off in a bubble of abstract greed as they are, and power and arrogance, they say, I don't see the big deal. It's not a big deal to them. You know, what's the difference? You know, uh, half the inspectors of the FDA aren't inspecting uh, imported fruit and vegetables from other countries, right? And we're already being, you know, constantly 
um, you know, uh, inundated with poison crap from all over the world. I mean, they should be a thousand times more FDA inspectors, but they close things down, so they furlough those people. And then they, um, and then they lay off people from the Centers for Disease Control so that we're entering flu season now. But any kind of flu vaccine that could be coordinated or supplied by the uh, federal government is interfered with now. And also people who uh, would investigate flu outbreaks or try to advise localities on how to control these, these people aren't working now. Right? And there are food programs that are near to closing down. And you can go through a whole list of things. Real things are happening to real people, including the people who, uh, who are furloughed. Uh, theoretically, they will be paid back pay. But right now, they're not getting a paycheck. And if they're due a paycheck and people live from paycheck to paycheck, we all understand that. I do. You probably do. Um, there are people who are not getting paid. There are hundreds of thousands of government employees who are not getting a regular paycheck now. Go tell that to the landlord. Go buy, uh, go buy groceries for the family with no money. See how that works out. Put it on your credit card, then you've got to pay interest rates on that. And these people insist on doing that. But now we're talking about an entire... There was an article in the Times, um, was it uh, this morning I was reading an article in the Times, and they interviewed people, and the big news was that a lot of major corporations, obviously this is a gigantic showdown that the Democrats and Republicans are having while we all scamper around trying to find scraps on the ground to eat, right? They're having their game. They're playing their game. And there was an article uh, that said, and it was a front-page article, that major corporations and, uh, you know, uh, industry groups are uh, think, uh, thinking again, are, uh, you know, overthinking their idea about backing these people. These people, had trim- the Republicans, typically are a business-friendly party, to put it mildly, uh, although the Democrats are all also about 90% corrupt and get a lot of their money from rich people and corporations. But the Republicans are somewhat worse than the Democrats. And, you know, they are, they are the representatives of the rich and of corporations, uh, you know, National Retail Association, the Chamber of Commerce, you name it, that kind of thing. So, you know, let's get rid of the minimum wage. Uh, you know, let's lift all safety and health uh, restrictions uh, that are imposed on employers. Uh, you know, let's, uh, you name it, right? They, they want to have, like, um, no minimum wage. They want to have no... <laughs> They, they want to turn the whole place into Bangladesh. They want to turn all of America into Bangladesh, pay everybody $2 an hour, and, uh, you know, let them starve to death. There's always enough people to walk in and take these jobs that people are dying in the streets because they're not getting paid enough. They don't care. No health insurance, you know, uh, $7 an hour, $8 an hour, whatever it is. But all of a sudden, big headline today, these people are so crazy and they are so, they are upsetting the basic system. The basic capitalist system is being upset by these guys. Uh, what exactly is happening? Uh, the bond market and the stock market are all are, are jumping over the place like a yo-yo, and some of it is plunging straight down. Right now, it's short-term bonds as opposed to long-term bonds, and beyond that, I cannot elucidate. But here's the point. A lot of very, very wealthy people and corporations who have money invested, and this includes, I suppose, uh, the word includes the, the rest of us, is, um, you know, our pension funds, you know, huge state and federal employee pension funds and uh, any uh, IRAs or any other things that we that we have uh, savings in, you know, if we are working at a job for 20, 30 years. Um, the whole financial market is turning into a yo-yo and it's volatile and nobody 
can predict anything. And business people want predictable profits and growth all the time. So even they are sick of these crazy guys in uh, in the um, these uh, this this nut core of Republicans that are doing this. And there's a civil war in, in the Republican Party. Uh, so they interviewed this guy who was the head of some, he's the CEO of some huge corporation. I forget, some famous corporation. It could have been, it's not Yahoo, it's some other place. And uh, maybe some huge clothing corporation, international global clothing corporation. So they interviewed this guy. His name is Joe Echevarria. And uh, he said, you know, a lot of us, and he means, you know, the guys down at the club who uh, buy and sell yachts for breakfast. He says, a lot of us, we don't, we don't support these people anymore because... Um, he said, uh, you know, these guys have like, they have like 90 seats. He was pointing out that they have 90 seats, this core group of, uh, of hard-ass, crazy, uh, dim-witted, uh, you know, greedy Republicans. They are trying to destroy the entire government. Actually, it's too soon for corporations and the rich to do away with government entirely. They still need to have employees who have to have some health who can come in and be sheep and create what it is, whatever junk they make that people don't need. You know, they have to have people to consume. You can't have everybody broke in this country and sick and dying and have no place to live because businesses make this garbage and, and some of it's necessary stuff. Somebody's got to buy it. There's got to be a basic civilization. And these guys um, hate government so much and are destroying the financial markets by the way they're behaving that rich people are upset even with them now. Because rich people can't stay rich if they destroy and if they, if they create a worldwide depression and people don't have any money at all, who are they supposed to sell things to? Martians? Moon creatures? You know? Uh, giant squids? It's human beings that have to buy their garbage. So they want people to have at least some basic financial health. So they're upset with these people. But here's the point. This is what this guy says. He says, extremists on both sides, he said, are upsetting everything. He said, we have to deal with these people because they have 90 seats in the House of Representatives. He said, but we don't have, you know, he said, on the other hand, you know, something like the Occupy movement, he says, they don't have any seats in the House. No, that's the point. That's the point. That's the point. So what am I saying? There's this gigantic war going on now within the, uh, the Democratic part, the Republican Party, the Democrats at the very highest level, and that's all just a bunch of rich, you know, uh, prostitutes, you know, people for, you know, who bend over for very rich people and corporations. All of these people are having a big fight, a big war with each other, and they're making ringing speeches, and they're uh, they're being eloquent and inspirational, and they're pointing their fingers and yelling and saying, "I will not stand down," and you know they're fighting this giant war while the rest of us walk around, you know, with, uh, you know, with increasingly expensive prices, with things that, that are not available for us, like medicines we need, with food inspections that are not happening, with the EPA allowing everything to go to pieces because they don't have enough people to inspect. Anyhow, everything is falling apart as we speak. It's not just some silly little shutdown. It's not the national parks or the veterans monuments. I mean, who cares? But the real things are happening, right? All this stuff is happening. They're all fighting with each other over what are they fighting about? What is all this entire fight about? Who at the highest level is really going to have more than somebody else at the highest level? It's really like a bunch of gigantic, uh, vicious dinosaurs in some bad horror movie or some bad science fiction movie fighting with each other. You know, it's like King Kong. Uh, and the, the little humans, that's us, the taxpayers, the citizens of the world, run around underneath them and have to watch out we don't get hit by their tails or stepped on. How long does this go on? 
How long does this go on? And then the next inevitable conclusion or step that you reach after you think this way and you see how clearly what it is. I mean, here's, uh, I picked up, a, and everything, I pick up the sports section, the government of Brazil, where everything, where everybody's going broke now, their economy is, is plunging and everything, there's tremendous hardship in Brazil. Uh, they had a period of, uh, you know, an up period for almost 10 years. But now things are very, very bad there. And there are millions of desperately poor people in Brazil, right? And things are falling apart. The economy is falling apart. So what are they doing? They're going into the middle of the Amazonian, Amazonian rainforest and spending $4 billion of money they don't have in a country where people are getting uh, desperately poor or poorer all the time and starving to death and living in slums that are some of the worst slums in the world. And you know, the police forces are increased and they're locking everybody up. Uh, they're spending $4 billion in the midst of this, $4 billion to go into the jungle and clear a gigantic area to build a place for the, uh, for the World Cup soccer. That's one thing. You pick that up. The other thing, you look at, uh, another, uh, you look at the, um, the, um, the op-ed piece in the New York Times, uh, rather the editorial, and it's saying that the government, uh, the, the Congress is proposing $3.6 billion to add to $250 billion already spent for a missile shield defense system on the east and west coast of the United States when there's no actual threat and it's never been proved to work at all. Who are all these people spending all this money arguing with each other over debt ceilings and shutdowns and how much money gets spent here and how much money gets spent there? Private prisons. Who are all these people? It's a small group of people who live, um, who are the epitome at the top of a gigantic culture of greed and materialism. And we're all involved in this. John Steinbeck famously said, and I'm paraphrasing, in the 1930s when they asked him, why don't people get even more upset or have a revolution about what's going on? This is in the midst of the Depression. He says, because in this country, everybody is brought up to secretly believe that they can be a millionaire. Everybody believes that. And it's still the truth. People, people really don't get that they're being fried alive like French fries, you know, in, in, uh, in a broiler by people who are rich. They don't get it because they themselves believe that with a little luck, they're going to win the lottery, that maybe uh, they will come up with a new app or that their son will go into the garage and invent the newest, the newest operating system uh, or that they'll make it uh, big in sports or music and they'll have an overnight hit or that they'll do something on YouTube and get rich. People in this country have no sense of the, the, the day-to-day meaning of life. We've got guys who live in penthouses trading and buying and selling things that aren't even real and thinking they work in a shop. You've got other people thinking they're going to get rich every day. When we're watching all these people fight over the debt ceiling and make all these speeches with each other, when we watch people who have $14 billion and we look from the sidelines, we let them get away with it because secretly a lot of people believe that it could be them. You know, they're... With the, with the love of, uh, of Yahweh, one day I'll be there too. I'll be rich too. So I have to preserve this system. I can't actually grab these people out of their penthouses, out of their congressional offices, and toss them into some pond full of sharks, which is what should happen. Anyhow, I'll see you next week. Because I 